Welcome back to Trustworthy. It's hard to believe it, but we're almost all the way through the study, and King Josiah is the last king that we'll study. Now, I know it's a little early to be talking Christmas, but whether you're a staunch, no Christmas music activities or decorations before Thanksgiving, or you're ready for the most wonderful time of the year on November 1st, it's hard to go into any store and not see Christmas stuff popping up everywhere. So there I was, a few days ago, in Walmart, and I was staring at a display of Elf on the Shelf boxes. Have you heard of Elf on the Shelf? Basically, it's a small stuffed elf that shows up on your door on December 1st with a letter from Santa, letting your kids know that the elf has been sent to keep watch over them. The elf's job is to report back to Santa whether the kids have been naughty or nice. Now the parents' job to keep the magic alive is to move the elf around so each night it's somewhere different. However, lots of people are getting into elaborate and hilarious setups for their elves. Here are a few of my favorites. Slutting elves with a beautiful stack of towels from the bathroom. Then we've got Snow Angel Elf, who appears to have gotten into the baking flour. Mission Impossible Elf coming down to take some of the candy from the jar. And my personal favorite, Hostage Elf, held up by the Green Army Men. Now normally, this seems like something I'd be super into. But I haven't quite pulled the trigger on the elf yet, even though I have a Pinterest board full of clever ideas. Here's what I think the holdup is for me. The first reason is that even though it seems like a lot of fun, I don't really want a nightly deadline hanging over my head. And I don't want to start something that I can't finish. And the second reason is maybe a little more complicated. You know the song Santa Claus is Coming to Town? Of course you do. It's a song that parents use to beg and plead with their children to behave during the holiday season. The whole point of the song is that Santa Claus is coming. He sees your every move, and so you better behave or you get presents instead of a lump of coal. But the chorus ends with, you better be good for goodness sake. But that's not what's happening at all. While the song makes it sound maybe more like an exasperated plea, be good for goodness sake, it's missing out on something very important. Be good for the sake of goodness. It's an important distinction, but it's one I think Josiah understood quite well. The first lesson we can learn from Josiah is do right for the sake of doing right. Be good for the sake of goodness. When Josiah begins his reign as king at the ripe old age of eight, which by the way is terrifying considering my son is seven and is certainly not prepared to rule kingdom, as fun as he is, the future of this kingdom is already doomed. Due to the failures of those who came before him, which I don't really need to reiterate because you've been studying it for weeks, those failures have brought on God's judgment. And God's people will no longer be enjoying autonomy in the once promised land flowing with milk and honey. Instead, they will be captive to another nation. They will lose their freedom. And this is inevitable. You see, in the past, in these stories of the kings, we've seen more than one occasion of the kings turning from their wickedness when things got really bad. There were a few moments when we saw these kings repent and actually humble themselves. Sometimes it was a lasting change, and sometimes it was more momentary. Remember when Jeroboam was making offerings to false gods and the prophet came to confront him, and his hand got all like shriveled up, and then he repented and the hand went back to normal? Or even when Hezekiah, a good king, learned that he was going to die. So instead, he entreated God with a list of positive attributes and reasons why he should live. He was working to change the outcome. 
but Josiah seems to be operating from a different place. When Hilkiah the priest finds the long lost word of the Lord and Josiah reads it and responds, which we'll, we will revisit soon, he sends the priest and a few servants out to find a prophet. And this is what it says in 2 Chronicles 34, 21. Go, inquire of the Lord for me and those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. Josiah realizes that the people have strayed very far from the law and the promises they made to God. He realizes this isn't a great situation for the people of Judah, and so he sends for a word from the Lord. Well, the search party comes across a prophetess named Huldah, and here is what Huldah says. 2 Chronicles 34, 24. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. It's not great. She does go on to say that this fate will not happen during the days of Josiah because he has humbled himself, but the destruction is inevitable. There's nothing they can do to stop it. For some people, this might be a deterrent. This could result in hopelessness or a kind of what's the point attitude. But the point, as Josiah understands it, is doing right for the sake of doing right. It doesn't matter that the destruction is coming. It is still right to do everything within his power to turn the people back to God, even if they will still be destroyed. In fact, the very next verses describe Josiah heading to the temple to begin the reforms and start a new covenant. If he reacts in any way to the news that comes from Huldah, we don't see it at all. He seems to move forward undeterred with as much determination and enthusiasm as he started with. The call of the Christ follower for us today is doing what is right no matter what. We all know this, of course, but it can be easy to forget sometimes. Sometimes when we do good, we want to be noticed for it. We want people to see the good we're doing. Everyone feels that way sometimes. I know I do. But that's not why we do good. This is the spiritual discipline of secrecy, doing good things without anyone knowing or being recognized for it. And it's considered a spiritual discipline exactly because it requires discipline. This is the type of determination Josiah displays. It's an important lesson that we can learn from him, which leads to a few application questions we can ask ourselves. If I do something good for someone else and no one ever knows, am I okay with that? Am I ever doing good or following God's laws motivated by guilt or obligation rather than simply doing what's right? And how can I ensure my priorities are rightly aligned? So the next lesson we can learn from King Josiah is delight in the word of the Lord. Have you ever loved a book so much that you simply had to devour it? I've always been a reader. There were times when as a kid, I would go missing in action for days at a time until I finished the new book I was reading. I remember being in Nepal during the re release of a new Harry Potter book and begging a friend to visit Kathmandu with me so I could get the latest installment from the English bookstore. And then, when my son was a newborn, I started reading these mystery books by Louise Penny. I loved them so much, I was devouring them. 
I was on my maternity leave, spending endless hours nursing a baby, so I didn't have much else I could do. So I read, book after book. It's a nice long series. And my husband would be driving around to all the Tri-Cities libraries to get me the next one. He learned how to check the shelves and then find the large print section if the shelf, if the shelf was empty. Well, after about book five, he started checking out the next two at a time, so he didn't have to make quite so many trips. He's a gem, my husband. And plain and simple, I love these books. And I have to confess, I don't always love the Bible in the way that I love other books. I think there's a few reasons behind this. One, sometimes the Bible is just straight up confusing and I have questions I can't find the answers to. Two, sometimes the stories don't have as much rich human and emotional detail as I would like. I want to know so much more of what's going on in the hearts and in the minds of the characters, and I'm often left wanting. And third, oftentimes I approach the Bible to study it and to acquire knowledge and understanding, which is important but isn't necessarily something I delight in. But Josiah teaches us to delight in the word of the Lord. One of the most shocking things I learned during this study of Kings was a small detail, but I found it to be very significant. In Josiah's time, people weren't reading the scriptures. They were lost and they weren't practicing Passover, which is one of the most important moments in their history and something we see celebrated later on in the Bible with Jesus and the disciples. I never realized that there was a time when all of that was lost. I think I had assumed that in the times of these kings, nearly everyone was falling away, but surely a faithful few kept the scriptures and read the law and celebrated the things God had commanded them to, to remember. But no, they didn't. And in reading the footnotes of my Bible, I learned that the Passover hadn't even been celebrated since the days of Judges, which means they didn't even observe it when David was king. So this, I admit, was very surprising to me. But when Josiah finds the scripture, he delights in what was lost. We read in 2 Kings 23 what Josiah does next. Here's verses 1 to 3. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people join in the covenant. Josiah brings the people together and he reads them this lost book of the law and then he invites them all to join this covenant before the Lord, promising to keep these commandments that they had forgotten and to follow him wholeheartedly once more. It's a really beautiful picture of a king who is turning his whole heart towards God and leading the people to do the same. When I read this, I'm reminded of Psalm 119. Let's take a look at verses 9 to 16. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word.
we must pray fervently that we, like Josiah and King David, can delight in God's law. You know, there are seasons for me when I delight in reading the Bible more than other times. Sometimes it's when I'm going through something difficult and I'm clinging to God's word. Other times it's when I get deeply interested in something. And sometimes I think I just have a better understanding of this truth. Closeness and intimacy with God grows when we spend more time with him. Not time out of obligation, but time out of love. Why does this fade sometimes? I don't know. Distraction, probably. We see that happening with the kings. But we also see what happens if we don't intentionally point ourselves back to God's word. We risk sinking it so far into the past that it becomes obsolete. May it never be so for us. Here are a few questions I think we can ask to help redirect ourselves. When did you last feel delighted in God's word? How can you ensure your attitude is oriented towards delight in his word? So our third lesson from the life of Josiah is as simple as it is essential. Tear down the high places. I told you before that I'm not great with plants. I'm not good with house plants, but I'm really not good at landscaping type plants. My yard is oftentimes the eyesore of the neighborhood, and I just hope that my neighbors know I've got small kids at home and give me grace for that. But one of the things I'm especially bad at is the weed situation. I spend time weeding once in a while, or when there's a particularly obtrusive weed and I end up pulling out all the ones around it. But this is typically a spur of the moment decision and I don't grab any tools or anything. I pull what I can physically pull and I call it a day. This means I often leave behind roots. And as any good gardener will tell you, or frankly anyone who has any idea at all about weeds, is that you have to pull them by the root. If you leave root behind, the whole dang thing is just gonna grow right back. Idols are like that too, as we've learned. In day one of this week of study, we read the story of Manasseh, Josiah's grandfather. Remember Manasseh? He was king of Judah, and he did more evil than all those before him, etc. Which, by the way, the bar is not set very high, but somehow these kings keep creeping further under it. It is astounding. But Manasseh, Manasseh ends up having a bit of a change of heart. See, after God tries to communicate with him and is ignored, Manasseh becomes captive of the Assyrians. Let's read a little bit about this in 2 Chronicles 33. I'm going to jump around a bit. Verse 13, he prayed to him and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving, and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. It's all good. It's astounding, really, given how this guy started out and the really, really atrocious things he did. But then we get a little hint here in verse 17 of what goes wrong. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Rather than destroy the high places, as he should have, Manasseh leaves them, and people continue to use them, but only to sacrifice to God. But here we see one of the biggest lies idolatry can tell us. It's okay as long as dot, dot, dot. 
This, my friends, is a dangerous game. It has caught me before, and I'm guessing it has caught you before. You cannot leave the root behind when it comes to idols. Manasseh did, and Josiah didn't. In fact, let's read what Josiah did in 2 Kings 23. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. He burns it to the ground. There are no roots left behind. In fact, he makes it so no one can ever worship false gods in that place again. And this is significant. It sets Josiah apart. He understands that there is no room for footholds, roots, or bargaining. It needs to be destroyed completely and entirely. The lesson here is clear. When it comes to the idols in our own lives, we cannot leave any room for them to grow or to resurface. We must destroy idolatry at the root. Of course, our modern older idols in our culture aren't as obvious as, say, a golden calf that people are making sacrifices to, but they are no less damaging. And as a result, we have to train ourselves to recognize idols in our lives before they take over and become seriously problematic. To really learn about modern idolatry and what we can do about it, there's no better resource I have found than Timothy Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. This book is a masterful look at idolatry and how to identify it. Here's a quote from that book. When anything in life is an absolute requirement for your happiness and self-worth, it is essentially an idol, something you are actually worshiping. When such a thing is threatened, your anger is absolute. Your anger is actually the way the idol keeps you in its service, in its chains. Therefore, if you find that, despite all the efforts to forgive, your anger and bitterness cannot subside, you may need to look deeper and ask, what am I defending? What is so important that I cannot live without? It may be that until some inordinate desire is identified and confronted, you will not be able to master your anger. Given that definition, you can see why I can't really stand up here and tell you what your idols are, but I can figure out what my own are, and you can figure out what yours are. When I think about modern idols, I tend to group them into two categories. Perhaps you might find this helpful as well. The first category is simple, and the other is complex. For example, the author of our study talks about television and spending some time away from television because of the numbing effect it can have on us. There are idols that fall into this category that are, I won't say easy, but I would say simple to eliminate. If alcohol is an idol, you can cut it out. If it's TV, you can cut it out. If it's social media or whatever thing, we can cut from our lives, even for a time, and be healthier as a result. But that's when the importance of burning it to the ground comes in. There can be no room for bargaining. You hear this sometimes from alcoholics who say, I tried to bargain over and over saying things like, well, I'll only have one drink from now on and never more, or trying to self-impose limits on TV without setting up any actual boundaries besides our own self-will. Most of us don't have that kind of willpower, nor is it wise to continually put that to the test. But it gets a little more complex when we start to talk about things that we cannot or should not cut from our lives, like our children or money, which isn't really practical to eliminate entirely, or even some of our beliefs. The process of rooting out idolatry in these areas gets a bit more complex. So while I'd love to tie a neat bow on this, I really can't. 
Idolatry is complicated, but it's worth figuring out. It's worth spending time doing the deep, soul-searching work to identify our idols and burn idolatry to the ground. You know, some common idols we see in our culture are money, sex, power, doctrine, children, spouse, friendships, or other relationships, patriotism, or perceived value to the world through accomplishment and success. If you find yourself bristling at any of these or feeling that your defenses are rising, that could potentially help you identify where idolatry is working in your own life. I know it was true of me as I made this list. Some of the words that I was writing felt a little bit more sensitive than others, and that is a helpful indication. You know, while this process can be a little painful and it requires sincere humility, we can be encouraged with the truth that God equips us with everything we need. He does not want his people to be slaves to idolatry. That was true of the people of Judah, and it's still true for us. So our final questions for reflection. Reading through Keller's description of idolatry again, what are my idols? What are the needs I'm trying to fill with something other than God? And how can I cut idolatry out of my life? I'll be asking these questions right alongside of you and praying that our God, who is generous in his love, will gently lead you and me to a place of humility and repentance and fill us up in only the way he can. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you are a gracious God and that you give us the tools that we need to follow wholeheartedly after you. Lord God, I pray that we would stop chasing after the empty promises of idolatry even today, that you would help us identify those things that are idols or are becoming idols in our lives, and that you would strip those from us, Lord. That you would remind us again that only you can satisfy and only you can fill our needs. In your name I pray, amen.